0: The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. and your land shall no more be termed desolate. And you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. But, passing through their midst, he went away.
1: Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us now, by your Spirit, to hear the voice of your Son and your word. And we pray you'd give us the humility to listen to him, to follow him, and not resist him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our question this morning is a very simple one, actually, very straightforward. What did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to do? And I hope wherever you're tuning in from this morning, whether you're part of the church family here or or just looking in on Christian things, I hope that's a question we might actually want the answer to. I mean, certainly if you're looking into Christian things, if you're curious if there's anything in this, well, I think it's pretty relevant, isn't it? There's no doubt that Jesus was someone special. I mean, his impact on human history is like no one else before him or since. He was a phenomenon. And a lot of books have been written about him. But, but what was his own agenda? In his own words, what did he say he came to do? It's not just relevant to newcomers, though. If we've been Christians for a while, it's always worth us looking back to see what Jesus actually said he came to do. Because as we've been thinking over bite-size over the last month, his mission will shape our mission as a church family, what we're about, what we do as a church and there are lots of versions of Jesus out there in 21st century public consciousness. There are lots of competing views about what he mainly came to do. So, so fundamentally, did Jesus come to feed the hungry, heal the sick? If so, then Christ's body on earth, the church, I guess our fundamental priority should be to focus our time and resources into food banks and medical care. Others might say, well, no, 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 Jesus fundamentally came as a moral example. He was an inspiration to love your neighbor as yourself, someone who could provide a healthy moral compass to society, and that might lead a church to focus its its energy and resources into into getting moral fiber into society, whether through education or lobbying or other means. Others would say, no, no, no. Jesus is far more radical than that. He was a social revolutionary. He came to challenge social injustice, to overturn the unfair abuse of the weak by the elite. Jesus came to set people free from trafficking, from wrongful imprisonment, from racism. That's his mission. There are plenty of voices who will say each of those but in any age in society, there's always a danger that we remake Jesus in our own image. So it's worth checking from Jesus' own lips, and we'll see it in our passage today, what did he actually say his mission was? In fact, the passage we just read from Luke 4 is often described as Jesus' manifesto. In lots of ways, it sets the agenda for the, where the rest of Luke's gospel goes, where the rest of Acts, the sequel, goes. I'm actually really glad we've got to here. We're going to pause, Luke, as we turn our attention to Easter over the coming weeks. We're going to pause, Luke, but I'm so glad we got here. Because in many ways, we've had the full introduction to Jesus, according to Luke, and now this will set his agenda going forward. Before we get to the answer to what he came to do, just to remind us, it has been an amazing introduction so far. The last four chapters have just been full of amazing announcements. Jesus kind of arrives on the stage of Jewish history, chapter 1, and then Roman history, chapter 2, and then human history, chapters 3 and 4. We've seen people saying extraordinary things about him. So uh, he's no one less than the long-awaited rescuer that the Old Testament promised would come, the one who would sort it all out. Zechariah saw in him the spirit-anointed king, the Davidic king that Isaiah promised. Simeon saw in him the spirit-anointed servant, the, the suffering servant that Isaiah promised. And at his baptism, God the Father ripped up the heavens into a PA system to say both of those are true. You are my beloved son, the promised king. With you, I'm well pleased. You're my righteous, suffering servant. As the spirit came down visibly on him to make the points, And we saw it wasn't just talk. Last week, Jesus proved himself unique in human history. The first ever leader not to be a disappointment, even to God the first son of Adam not to behave like Adam, the first one not to fool and put himself first when faced with the devil's temptations. And so we do come into this passage, into verse 14, with a sense of real excitement, I think. I mean, what's he going to do? This is the hope of Israel, the hope of humanity. John the Baptist has said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. What's he going to do? Verse 14, let's pick up the reading. Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. I mean, here we go. All of God's power and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. I mean, no surprise, word is getting out. And then verse 15, he, wait for it, he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Which might sound like a bit of an anticlimax although not once we've heard what Jesus has to say. You see, as he heads into his local synagogue, we're back in his hometown of Nazareth, verse 16, he picks a very carefully selected passage in Isaiah. He reads it and then gives the most amazing one-sentence sermon. Let's have a look, verse 18. This is the reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, here's the sermon, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, it's likely that verse 21 is a summary rather than the entire transcript. But actually, just that one sentence is enough to understand Jesus' jaw-dropping point. Jesus is taking that famous passage from Isaiah 61, a passage full of hope of the day when God would come to rescue his people to show his favor. And Jesus says that's no longer talking about some far-off rescue. It's not talking about some future prophet or amazing servant of God to come, some future day of God's kindness. No, it's happening right here, right now, today. Jesus says the day that he stood up to preach in Nazareth was the day when Isaiah 61 came true. Or to put it another way, this is Jesus' explanation of what he's doing right here, right right now. It's what he's come to do. It's who he is and what he's about. It's his manifesto. In many ways, it completes the set that we've been seeing in Luke from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, The book of Isaiah has three major blocks. And each provide a different portrait of God's chosen rescuer, the Messiah, the anointed one. So in Isaiah 1 to 39, there's this picture of a king, the spirit-anointed king from David's line. And we saw Jesus declared um, to be that king, the the, the sunrise on the people walking in darkness, Isaiah 9. Zechariah said it. And we've seen the middle section of the book, which, which focuses on Jesus as the servant, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Simeon pointed to that as he held baby Jesus in his arm. And now, climactically, as Jesus begins his ministry, he turns to the third section of Isaiah, the center of that section, Isaiah 61, and the final portrait of the chosen rescuer, the spirit-anointed preacher. We already knew Jesus was the chosen king and the suffering servant, But now we hear he came as a preacher. He came as the Spirit-anointed preacher. So, here's our first point. And in lots of ways, if you forget everything else, if it's been an exhausting week, if you're already zoomed out and you can only remember one sentence I say, please remember this one. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to the needy. That's the answer. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to the needy. That's his mission according to him. Now it's important we understand what he means by that. So we're going to take quite a lot of time uh, out of this sermon to to just focus on what that statement means. We We need to see all three parts of it. He came to proclaim the gospel to the needy. Sometimes people only notice the last bits, notice the different needs that he mentions he came to. So he came to the poor, he came to the captives, he came to the blind, he came to the oppressed. That is absolutely true. Jesus was sent for needy people, and we're going to come back and think a lot more about that later. But it's easy to spot that bit and then assume what the rest would be, what his solution would be. So food for the poor justice for captives, healing for blind. But just look back at the verses. You see, the emphasis, despite Jesus' miraculous power, the emphasis is on proclaiming, on communicating a message. It comes three times. It's hard to miss. Verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed 19, to proclaim the year of the, God's, of the Lord's favour So there three times the start, the end, the middle Jesus was sent to proclaim his proclamation is what sets people free and recovers sight and if you're thinking well, yeah of course I'd make a lot of that because I'm a preacher <laughs> that's my thing or if you're thinking, well, of course, charmers, that would be the line on it from this kind of church because we're a kind of church that's into preaching. Notice this isn't our thing. It's Jesus' thing. If you want some proof that I'm not just reading it into the passage, just look across in chapter 4 to verse 42. Luke 4, 42. Jesus has just been healing many sick people. He does have compassion on people's practical needs. But the next day, he heads out of town. Let me pick it up from verse 42. When it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. I mean, of course you would. You don't need a health service if you've got Jesus. But he said to them, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for that purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. It's not just that Isaiah predicts it and his sermon in Nazareth announces it. This episode confirms it. It's just explicit there. According to Jesus, in his own words, twice now in chapter four, he says, I came to proclaim, I came to preach, I was sent for that purpose. So that's the first thing to notice, he came to proclaim. Secondly, though, what is the message he came to proclaim? I mean, it must be something pretty significant if it takes precedent over all the good that someone with Jesus' power could do in society. He's the most loving man to uh, to ever walk the earth. You can see that as you read on in the Gospel. And so for him to walk away from providing more practical care so that he can continue to spread a message to another town i mean what is this message he came to preach well if your eyes are still on verse 43 of luke 4 it's mentioned there i must preach the good news of the kingdom of god to the other towns as well that phrase good news it's literally gospel jesus came to preach the gospel god's good news and if you look back at our passage to the Manifesto in verse 18, it's exactly what he says there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel to the poor. Jesus came to preach the gospel, the good news. What is the good news? Well, again, there's a risk that we just read in what, what we would think of as good news or our contemporary culture might, might like as good news But there are two ways to actually check what Jesus means by good news. The first is to look back to Isaiah, because he's quoting from there. And the second is to check that on how Luke has used the phrase good news. So we're going to do both of those. Um, A little bit of concentration and work uh, required in the next few minutes. But it is important. This is the message Jesus came to share. So what is the gospel, the good news, according to Isaiah? Isaiah. There's a lot we could say, and don't worry, I'm not about to teach, like, try and teach Isaiah in its whole. Let's just pick two key moments in the book where the phrase, the actual phrase, good news, comes up. First, in Isaiah 40, and we won't turn there, but Isaiah 40 announces comfort for God's people because the Lord is coming to provide a solution to their sin. That's the good news. It says, Get up on a mountain and declare the gospel, the good news. The Lord is coming to provide a sin solution. Another key passage, Isaiah 52 verse 7, it uses that phrase, good news, and it's just before the famous servant song, which has a picture of this suffering servant who dies in our place, who dies for our transgressions, our sins, who takes a deserved death so we might have a share in his righteous life. Just as we prayed at the start of the service as Freddie led us. That is the good news. So that's Isaiah. The good news, the gospel, is the announcement God is coming to save his people from their sin, to set them free from the judgment that comes at their sin. And I realize if you're new to Christian things, well, that might not sound good news at all. I mean, I don't particularly want someone calling me a sinner. But Isaiah is clear that is our biggest problem. Everyone's biggest problem. Humanity's biggest problem. All the other mess stems from there, whether social, financial, environmental, even. That is the international rescue mission we need. We've been seeing that from bite size. And actually, when you look through the early chapters of Luke for the phrase good news or gospel, it's exactly the same here. So the angel Gabriel um, first proclaimed gospel, good news, to Zechariah. And when Zechariah had finally got over his unbelief and he was able to open his mouth again, he describes it like this, giving knowledge of salvation to God's people in the forgiveness of their sins. Likewise, when the angels appear to the shepherds in chapter 2, verse 10, they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you gospel, good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour, a saviour's coming. Then chapter 3, John the Baptist, his preaching was described as gospel, good news. I mean, we might think, well, but it was pretty strong, Yeah, it was pretty strong. His message was, you need to turn around because there's a sin problem which only God can provide forgiveness for. It is just the unanimous witness of Scripture from Isaiah to Gabriel to Zechariah to the heavenly host to John the Baptist and now to Jesus himself. The good news, the great announcement is that God is coming to save people from sin. And Jesus says, I came fundamentally to proclaim that message. It's not that he doesn't provide any practical care. He's compassionate. He's a loving man. He he loves people holistically, sacrificially, compassionately, and so should we. But he is in no doubt about what the loving priority is announcing this good news of forgiveness. That's actually the deepest need of every single person. We need to know that this salvation from sin is available from God. And so, of course, it's a wonderful thing for Christians to be involved in providing social welfare, food provision, medical service, seeking justice in society, so many other things. There are are countless ways to love our neighbors, and we are called to. And yet if we want to love our neighbors as Jesus loves them, we'll also want to engage in Jesus' central mission, this, this sharing of good news in each of those contexts. We'll be praying for opportunities to share that good news. That's what he's about, proclaiming good news to the needy. Just very practically, what might that mean? Well, for us as a church family, I think this is a great passage to be in as we kind of look ahead to how we can serve the community around us in this local place. Uh, Many of us are hoping, uh, as we give sacrificially to refurbish this building, we're we're hoping it can be used in a number of ways to serve the community, all sorts of groups in the community, youth groups and parent and toddler groups and ministry with the marginalized and connection with the elderly. All sorts of things will be possible, God willing. But if we want to stay aligned with Jesus' mission, in all of that planning, a key question will keep being, how can we lovingly share the good news of Jesus, even as we care for these people? Likewise, as we think about sending people overseas on mission or elsewhere in in Scotland and the UK, our priority is always going to be planting churches, not just welfare stations, and sending people to share the gospel, not just care practically, just what we saw in Bite Size. To which uh, I guess a possible pushback could be to say, well, that's pretty rich, coming from a comfortable middle-class preacher in a nice shirt in a wealthy Edinburgh suburb. I mean, it must be convenient for you to to only think about preaching when you've got food to eat and a place to live. To which I'd say, and I've been grappling with that question this week, I think this absolutely is a challenge to the comfort we live in, and, and Luke will continue doing that as we go on through the book. But remember, we're not defining this agenda Jesus is. Jesus, who was born in a barn to dirt poor parents. Jesus, who later will say in Luke that during his ministry, his accommodation situation is less stable than a wild animal. Do you remember that comment? Even foxes have somewhere to lay their head, but the Son of Man doesn't. See, Jesus understands poverty. He knows need. He's full of compassion. And yet, still, his priority is preaching the gospel. How can that be? I mean, how does that make any sense? Well, there'll be much more explanation as we go through Luke. If you want, you could think about the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus, who had nothing, a beggar at the gates, and the rich man who seemed to have everything. And yet when eternity came, Lazarus was right with God. And that's what mattered. There'll be lots more in Luke to help us understand this. But actually, even if we just stop and think about what we've already seen about Jesus so far in this book, <clears throat> Jesus knows He's the spirit-anointed king of Isaiah 9 or Psalm 2. And that means he is going to judge every nation. Every single human being is going to be held accountable to him. And he knows people need to hear that before it's too late. Likewise, he's the spirit-anointed suffering servant He knows he's the only righteous one who can take our place, who can die our death so that we can be seen as righteous in God's sight. That's why we read the rest of um, the Isaiah 61 passage. It's all about providing righteousness to unrighteous people. And that is huge news. Jesus knows people need to hear that. So he came to proclaim the gospel. Finally, though, um, on his mission, it is really clear that he came to proclaim the gospel to the needy. Let me read the verses again. He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. People often say Jesus has a particular concern for the poor And here it is, in black and white, he came to people in real need. Poor, captives, blind, oppressed. Again, though, we do need to ask, what does this mean? What did Isaiah mean by those terms? What does it mean in Luke, as we read on? Because there's a superficial way of reading this that that might say Jesus is only interested in those who are in poverty, in terms of socially, economically. As if kind of, If someone's net worth is below a certain level, then Jesus is interested. Interested to proclaim in the schemes, but wouldn't have anything to say to the comfortable people of Morningside. Actually, that doesn't fit what what he goes on to do in Luke. He does reach out to the most downtrodden in society, poor lepers. But he also calls Peter and his other partners in a fishing business. He does reach out to a paralytic, but he also reaches out to Levi, who's a tax collector. Plenty of money there. He, he reaches out to a blind becker and rich Zacchaeus in the same chapter. So it can't just be about bank balances. Again, the way to understand is to go back to Isaiah, and we don't have time to do this in much detail, so just be very brief. Um, Isaiah has said that Israel, God's people, are trapped in their sin and its consequences. See, they're literally captive to nations that God has sent in judgment. They're blind spiritually. See, the poor and needy doesn't just mean those on the breadline. It means all of those who've sinned against God and are trapped in the consequences of that, his judgment. And actually, all of us are in that situation. All of us are needy people when it comes to the gospel. But then why doesn't he just say, I came for everyone? I mean, he does use these words of need, poor, blind. I think there's two things. Firstly, that Some of those most needy groups in society are some of those that we're tempted to overlook. It's very clear as we go on in Luke that Jesus has an eye on the outsider. Jesus doesn't restrict himself to a particular part of society, he's kind to all people. He does go out of his way to get to outsiders. But I think there's a second reason why these words of need are used. You see, Jesus came for people who need help and recognize it. Jesus came for needy people who recognize it. And one of the sad things about being rich and comfortable and well-connected in this life is that sometimes that does blind us to how much we need a rescue mission from God. If we're used to paying our way, we can really struggle to accept Jesus and his rescue mission. Striking, actually, Peter, um, who had a business, he was a small business owner with a partnership, he became a disciple by saying this, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, Lord. Lord. That's the model response in Luke. I'm needy. I'm not worthy. But the rich young ruler that we'll see later, he thinks he's fine. The rich man with Lazarus at his gate, he thought he was fine. When the prodigal son recognizes his need for forgiveness, the older brother thinks he's fine. The Pharisees think they're fine. In fact, Jesus will tell a story that God is throwing this wonderful banquet for eternity, and he's invited all sorts of people, but the rich and the comfortable turn down the invitations. They think they've got better things to do. And so the invitation carries on going out to the poor and the lame and the needy. You see, you'll see Jesus' international rescue mission as wonderful if we recognize we need rescuing. If we're aware of our poverty before God, our our sinful blindness, our captivity to our sin, well, then it's great news. And Let me just appeal directly. If you're looking into Christian things, you do need this. That's what Jesus says. So please don't have the reaction, how dare you, Jesus, preach at me? How dare you judge me? How dare you patronize me as if I'm a sinner? As if you have something to offer me that I can't do without? How dare you preach at me, Jesus? Still the same today. I remember actually, I was in a prison shadowing a chaplain for a week in London. And I remember him saying, it was striking sharing the gospel, the good news in in a prison, because actually there people weren't pretending that they'd made brilliant life choices. There, people could see that maybe they might need some help to get life sorted out. Whereas I wonder, sometimes the rich and comfortable, we're still pretending that nothing's wrong. That's our first point. And don't worry, the second point will be very brief if you're you're panicking. Um, That was the main thing we wanted to get clear, that Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to the needy. But just before we leave the passage, uh, there is something to notice in the back half because on this subject of taking offense, did you notice in the reading that by the end of the passage, verse 29, they're trying to drive Jesus out of town, throw him off a cliff, and kill him? It's not ideal, is it? He's back in his hometown. Kind of. How did your first sermon go in the synagogue? Well, it started a riot. They were so angry, they tried to lynch me. What on earth is going on here? Well, track with me as we, we look at how the crowd starts to turn. First off, verse 22. We can see that initially, um, reactions are quite positive. Verse 21, uh, they're, they're all speaking well of him. Um, but then someone asks verse 22 is this not Joseph's son now it could be that's a positive comment wow wow amazing he's great but from the way that Jesus reacts I actually think it's the start of some disquiet see Jesus is a local lad they've seen him growing up they know his dad surely there's no way he could be the long promised preacher of Isaiah 61 who does this guy think he is And then Jesus picks up their skepticism, and he actually does the rest of the conversation for them. Verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What what we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, what does that proverb mean? I think just that if Jesus is such an amazing healer, why doesn't he try his skills at home, in his hometown? As he points out, what, you've, what we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. It does sound like there's an element of disbelief in there, because they don't say what you did at Capernaum, they, they say what we've heard you did, you know, if it's really true, but can you prove it here and now with us? Jesus, enough of your preaching. If you're really something special, we want the miracles. If you're a healer, do some healing for us here and now, like the ones you apparently did down the road. To which Jesus pushes back pretty strongly. Verse 24, he said, "Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown." He's starting to pick up this lack of belief in them, and then things begin to get more tense. Verse 25, Jesus really starts to expose their hearts. He turns back to a time in the Bible where God worked His saving power to needy people outside of Israel's borders. So Elijah with a widow in Zarephath. Elisha with with Naaman the Syrian, both from foreign nations. See, that was a time when Israel were rejecting God's word and God sent his prophets elsewhere. He extended his saving power elsewhere to Gentiles, to foreign nations. Even as Israelites missed out on his miraculous power to save. Jesus tells them that story as a clear warning of what might happen to them. And it directly connects with what we've just seen in the manifesto. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to the needy. But if this Nazareth crowd don't recognize themselves as needy and the one whom Jesus can help with his preaching, well, he is more than capable of going to those who will listen. We've already heard he'll be a light to the nations. We'll see it happen in Acts. See, there's a real danger that Nazareth would return to the days of Elijah and Elisha, rejecting God's message of salvation, even as others are included. Verse 27 puts it like this. There were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. How do the crowd react? Well, not by begging Jesus to help them, not by apologizing and throwing themselves on his sovereign mercy. They react with outrage, that they would be overlooked and some far less deserving people would benefit from Jesus. How dare you, comes the cry again. See, if a sense of entitlement was hinted at in verses 23 and 24, as they demand this local boy serves up the same miracles here as he's done somewhere else, well, now it's firmly in evidence, this sense of entitlement in their fuming outrage. They're raging that Jesus would go to undeserving people, needy people like the Gentiles. Verse 29, they're so angry... They rise up and throw him, drive him out of town, try to throw him off a cliff. And you know, the irony is, even as they're trying to kill him, God miraculously protects him. It is actually real irony. Um, the third temptation of the devil was, if you throw yourself off a high place, God will protect you. He's promised to. And in the very next episode, God protects his son from being thrown off. Your foot won't won't touch a stone. But for Nazareth, that warning stuck. He didn't go back. And so let me just appeal again. If you're listening in to Christian things, you're hearing what Jesus is about, what he offers, well, please don't take offense. Please don't think, how dare he preach at me? Maybe if he did some more signs right in front of my eyes, then I'd believe. Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the needy. We do have to recognize that we're needy. Our time is up. It's time to conclude. We've seen Jesus' manifesto. We've seen what he came to do. Fundamentally, he came to proclaim the gospel to the needy. And in lots of ways, that sets the agenda for the rest of Luke and Acts. What is the gospel? Well, this announcement that God's come to save us from sin. Who are the needy? Well, all of us, bottom line. But particularly, we need the humility to admit we are. Those who don't admit that will find the message of Jesus deeply offensive. And so as we go on into Acts, we'll see some people gladly joining Jesus' people so grateful for a rescue. We'll see others hating him and his people and that message. And as we go on thinking about um, what we should do as a church family, as we think about how to use this building and how to keep growing in our mission and our witness, um, let me just say that one thing that puzzles me is how is it that, that Christian organizations often start Especially when reaching out to the needy, often start with practical care and proclaiming the message of Jesus. They often start exactly where Jesus is, with this clear sighted priority that people need to hear the news of salvation. But then over the years and over the decades, often that bit falls away. I can now countless Christian organizations, mission organizations where that's happened. Why does it happen? Well, precisely because Jesus' preaching causes offence. No one's going to have a problem if we provide for um, social welfare in this area or further afield. But it's when we hear Jesus' words that a sin solution is needed. That's when the offence can come. That's where the offence comes in Acts and today in Scotland. And Luke's encouragement to us, if if that sounds therefore scary and daunting, as I know it sometimes does to me in my heart, the encouragement of Luke and Acts is that God gives us his spirit. Just as he gave Jesus the spirit to preach like this, he gives us his spirit and the church in Acts, the early church, his spirit to share that wonderful good news wherever we can. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the clarity of Jesus, and I pray very much that um, you would, by your Spirit, bring his words into our hearts. Please be shaping us as individuals and as a church family to line up with Jesus. And where we are scared at that or, or um, concerned at the offense that can be caused, we pray very much that you would strengthen us by your Spirit, the Spirit of love and power, and self-control. In Jesus' name, amen.